Welcome to McKinsey on Startups, a series focused on helping entrepreneurs and investors accelerate growth, brought to you by Fuel, the firm's startup practice. Each episode, McKinsey editor Daniel Eisenberg speaks with founders, investors, and industry experts to share the latest perspectives across borders and sectors. Hello and welcome to McKinsey on Startups. I'm Daniel Eisenberg. Our guest today is Adea Zhao, the co-founder and managing partner at Base10 Partners. This San Francisco-based VC firm focuses on startups bringing automation technology to a variety of sectors in what it calls the real economy, including logistics, retail, healthcare, fintech, and food. Its investments have included the likes of Nubank, Instacart, Figma, and Rappi. While Ade and his co-founder TJ Nahigian take a particular data-driven approach to choosing their investments, that is far from the most distinctive thing about Ade or Base10. Last year, with the closing of a new $460 million fund, Base 10 became the first black-led venture firm to hit the milestone of having more than a billion in assets under management. Ade is half Nigerian, and he grew up in southern Spain, where he co-founded and eventually sold a company called Twenty, a social networking site often called the Spanish Facebook. He relocated to the West Coast to get his MBA at Stanford and ended up co-founding another startup called Identified that he ended up selling to Workday. Before co-founding Base 10, he was an active investor, helping to launch such startups as Cabify and Job and Talent. Base 10 is not formally a diversity-focused investor, but a large share of its investments do happen to be with minority founders. And Ade and the firm spend a lot of time thinking and working to grow the pipeline and increase opportunities in tech for Black and other underrepresented populations. Its advancement initiative is a $250 million growth stage fund that donates 50% of returns to HBCUs to fund scholarships for minority students and several HBCUs also act as LPs for the fund. More broadly, Base10 describes its mission as helping founders solve problems for the 99%. So let's get to our conversation with Ade Ajao of Base10 Partners. Welcome to the podcast, Ade. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Daniel. I believe you started your first company while you were still in college. That was when you were living in Spain, where you grew up. Tell us a little bit about what inspired the start of your journey as an entrepreneur with Tuente. Absolutely. My journey as an entrepreneur really begins with a love for technology. I was an extremely nerdy kid. I actually started coding pretty early when I was 12 or 13 years old. I think originally it was chess that led to coding because I wanted to do chess programs and doing a small video games. And it wasn't a very popular hobby in the 80s and 90s in Spain. So I definitely tried to keep it under wraps as much as possible, but I never gave it up. And although when I went to college, I didn't study computer science. I was doing economics and law school. I always kept coding on the side. At the time, I was a early 20s a university student in Spain. One of the things I wanted to do was meet other university students. Together with a friend, we ended up creating this site that we call Who is Who. It was basically an online directory of students. We all had profiles and uh, you could try to befriend them. That got quite a bit of traction on Madrid, but it was the kind of thing that you knew if you were a university student there, but that was about it. On my last year of college, took an exchange program to the US to study at Emory in Atlanta. I was there in Halloween when Facebook launched in campus. I remember someone telling me, oh, add me on Facebook. And they showed it to me. And I was like, oh my God, this is a version of Who's Who, but better with more pictures. So I called my friend and I was like, hey, 
it turns out there is this thing called Facebook and it's actually quite interesting and I think it's going to be big. So we should do something similar. That was the beginning. Little did I know what was going to become. I remember when Facebook raised their Series A at about 70 million valuation. My friend and I were like, oh my God, a website can be worth 70 million. Imagine that. So those were the beginnings. And then you eventually sold Twente to Telefonica, right? Correct. And you moved to Silicon Valley. Was that to attend Stanford? Yeah. Having started Twenty changed my life and I think the life of all our co-founders. Uh, when we sold the company, we were 26 years old. We sold it for $100 million That in today's startup market is, is obviously nothing. For us, it was life-changing. And for Spain at the time, it was really a first. We could have done many things. However, having always had a love for science and technology, I already knew about the Silicon Valley and the mythical campuses of the U.S., like Stanford and MIT. So it was almost a no-brainer. Once I was in a position to do almost anything, I was like, well, now I want to do this again, but I want to do it in the big leagues. I want to move out of the village and go to the big city of Silicon Valley. I enrolled in Stanford very much with the idea of I'm going to do another company. I remember I had a, a list of things that I needed. I need a visa. I want to meet a network of people. I want to be close to computer scientists in particular. And I also want to take a little bit of a break because 20 has been quite intense. So I applied to Stanford, thankfully got in. But it was interesting because 70 to 80% of my MBA class wanted to become an entrepreneur and start a company. And I had already done that. My experience was quite different and really, really positive. Stanford was everything I wanted and more. I really used the two years to go through a very long list of ideas for what the next thing will be. Probably 20 or 30 of them. That was the journey. You eventually founded or co-found Identified which was AI for HR. How is the experience different being a founder in the Valley? It was extremely different. When we were going around trying to fundraise for 20, the best we were met with was blank stares. There were really no venture capital funds in the country. And we're like, we want to do a, a website for university students to upload pictures and meet each other. We'll be pitching investors that had made money in real estate in southern Spain. And they will be like, what are you talking about? Is this some Nigerian scam? That was the reception. And suddenly I'm at Stanford and it's like, oh, you're getting a, a seminar on venture capital by a founder of Benchmark and by a partner in Sequoia. It literally fell out of a dream. On the other hand, though, for someone who always considered himself quite technology focused, I suddenly felt like a fish out of water. Because everything felt so big, culturally, people were a lot more outwardly confident than I was, even in the way of pitching and in the way of going about things. So I suddenly got what I later understood is formally called imposter syndrome. I was the village kid. I did this thing in Spain, but these are the big leagues. Maybe I don't belong. It was hard to get over that. So quite different, a lot more resources, a lot more energy and can-do attitude, but definitely a lot of adaptation and growth that had to happen. It's interesting. You had already started a successful company, but you still experienced self-doubt. Did you have to consciously work 
at it to present yourself in a more confident manner? Absolutely. I still work at it today. I'll give you one anecdote that I remember pretty vividly. One of my closest friends, he's now a, a GP at one of the leading venture firms. And I was practicing my identified pitch with him. And I'm like, what do you think? He said, it's good. I think you have to dial up the arrogance by 100x. Wait, arrogance, that's bad. And he said, you don't get it. You're coming from Southern Spain, it's so good. You don't want to brag, but you start a successful company. You know the tech, you know what you're doing. Here you will find people out of high school that will come to the room and tell you, you are looking at the next Bill Gates. That's what you're competing against. And unless you interiorize that, you're not going to be able to transmit it. And don't worry, you're Spanish, African, so even if you dial up, you're not going to be in the top or dial that is stuck with me and I'm better at it now, but it's taken very conscious work. At Base 10 now, we work a lot with immigrant founders and U.S. founders that are not from Silicon Valley. I bring this up with them quite often. Every single one of them is like, I'm glad you brought that up. I'm struggling with that. Let's transition to talking about Base 10. Identified, wanted to be really successful. You guys sold it eventually to Workday, and then you worked at Workday for quite a while. How did you make the transition to venture investing? We sold 20 in 2010, and I immediately started Identified that summer. I also, within that same year, was able with two different friends to help incubate two companies that I helped start, but I did not run full-time. One is Cabify. Um, and the other one is Japan Talent. It's interesting because of the four companies that, that I helped start, 20 identified Cabify and Japan Talent. Cabify and Japan Talent are the two biggest ones. Each of them is over two billion today. My co-founders always joke, well, that's because you weren't involved full time. You know, it's better to have you on the sides. Although they joke about that, I actually think that it was some kind of true. I'm a zero to one kind of person that likes to be there at the beginning when everything is to be done uh, and there are way better people scaling. The moment I had my first liquidity with 20, it became clear to me that if I wanted to be a zero to one person forever, one of the ways in which I could do it was through investing very early when everything was to be done. So I started investing. Cabify was an incubation, but very shortly after starting Cabify, one of my first investments was called 99 Taxes. That was very successful, ended up being sold to Didi for a little bit over a billion. I really liked the general thesis of both Cabify and 99 Taxes was helping automate transportation, right? I just found the problem fascinating for a number of reasons, from the technology level to the human level. How do you make it so this experience for the drivers is something they want to do? and stay with you long-term because driver retention is absolutely key for that business to be successful. In Latin America in particular, it, it was transformational. A lot of my early investing was following that thesis of what happened when you help automate a large sector of the real economy, such as transportation. One of my next investments in the U.S. was actually Instacart that obviously went to become quite big in, in grocery delivery. Then I invested in Rappi, that is Instacart for Latin America. So applying automation and machine learning to 
real economy sectors is quite interesting. Meanwhile, I had Sol identified to Workday and I was at Workday helping integrate our technology and our team and honestly learning a lot because I had never seen a company of the scale. I thought we knew how to do enterprise sales at Identified. And then I got to work there and I was like, oh, we actually knew nothing. This is what a world-class organization looks like. But I was increasingly drawn to investing. And I ended up doing almost 100 personal investments. When I talked to work, they were extremely generous and offered me to start their corporate venture fund, Workday Ventures. So for the next couple of years, I was able to run work the ventures that was also related to my thesis. It was actually automation of HR. And a funny thing happened. One of the first things I did was build this algorithm that will send me an alert if any startup related to human resources started doing well in any particular platform. Let's say the App Store. And I got an alert that in that particular week, a company called Jobber that had just started had got into number one. I look up the office, basically showed up and was like, hey, I'm interested in what you're doing. I want to invest. I represent work. The founder was confused, but stuck with me for a couple of hours and I ended up investing. That was fortuitous because two years later, he became my co-founder at Base 10. That's how we... You talk about an alert that you set up uh, for the app store. Did that inform what you guys use at Base 10? I know you have this data-driven software tool that helps inform the investments that you choose. Can you talk briefly about how that tool works and how it helps you make decisions? We call that tool Base 11. Yes, help us be more efficient and more focused. My co-founder, TJ, he came from the investing world. He had work at Summit Partners, Excel Partners, and Kotu. When I told him I was doing a fund focus on automation for the real economy, and I showed him some of my investments, such as you know Instagram, Rappi, and 99, he was like, what you're doing is called thematic investing. There is a way of doing this that Excel, Koto, and Summit actually do, and do a market map, and you reach out to companies. He told me a lot about how you do this when you know what an investment process looks like. But my observation was, that sounds great. There is a way of doing this better if you use data and automation in the process. Uh, let me show you some of the tools that I've built for myself to do this better. In that meeting of minds is what eventually became Base 11, day one of Base 10. It was the year myself in a room uh, being like, okay, automation of logistics. How do we go about that? Um, and it pretty quickly became clear that if we use data and automation to figure out what are all the companies out there, what are the ones that are showing signals that they might be interesting? There are a lot of questions that are better answered with data. Our observation was that although a number of investment institutions were starting to have data teams, very few were um, using it at every step of the investment process themselves. What got us firmly convinced to bet the DNA of Base 10 on Base 11 and data was one simple stat. When I was fundraising in Sun Hill Road in 2009, if you were a general partner sitting at a venture firm and you wanted to see every single deal in Silicon Valley, that will amount to about eight deals a day. Probably you were only doing either consumer or enterprise, so it was like four deals a day. You didn't need to see 100%. That number today 
is 112 deals a day. And that is if you exclude international or crypto. So it was extremely clear to us, if you are going to make an attempt at thematic mapping and investing, data and automation have to be at the core of it. When you're looking at companies to invest in, automation opportunities sounds like the mega theme. Are there other things you're looking for? We are very, very thematic. The number one question that we ask ourselves is, in this particular automation subtrend, uh, do we think that um, interesting developments are going to happen over the next five, 10 years? Because we invest so we could have returns in the next five to 10 years. To give you a sense, since we started Bistan six years ago, 60% of our capital has gone to only six trends. Automation of logistics, retail, food, fintech, some subsectors of fintech, global fintech. So we look a lot at that. Then we have two strategies, early stage and growth stage. I'll talk about growth stage in a moment. But once we are fully convinced that a particular trend, say, B2B payments in Latin America, which is actually something we have invested quite a bit uh, after, has momentum. We use our software to contact as many companies as we can possibly find everywhere. We like to contact companies globally because we learn from every geography. I think it's part of our secret sauce. But then interestingly, it comes to then meeting the companies and then it becomes all about the people. It becomes all about the team. For me in particular, there are two things that I really look for. And they are greed and authenticity. Starting a company is extremely hard. I had a, a full head of hair when I started 20 and there's not much left today. That's for a reason. You just have to really want it and not have a romanticized view of what the journey is. I try to ask entrepreneurs about their lives and what greed means for them in their personal life up till then. I think you have to be pretty authentic to the problem you're trying to solve because that will give you empathy for your end user and that will get you to make better product and market decisions. Two years ago, we started a growth strategy. I want to mention it because I think it's significant to who we are. Research and data is 50% of our DNA. The other 50% is purpose. If you Go back to when we launched our first fund. Um, we talk about uh, wanting to back founders that are solving problems for the 99%. And we talked about things like sustainability is as important as efficiency. You have to authentically convey to the community you are serving that you are a force for good. We want to back founders that represent the demographic and geographic diversity of that 99%. Those who are core pillars to our strategy. And in 2020, for reasons we all know, corporate America in general and Silicon Valley in particular started having a, a little bit of an aha moment in terms of the 99% impact, sustainability, diversity, representation. They actually matter <laughs> because they matter to employees, they matter to clients, they increasingly matter to shareholders. We found ourselves in a really interesting position because although we were not one of the biggest funds, we had 400 million in the management back then, we were six people. We were actually the biggest that was talking about that. <laughs> so we got a lot of calls from growth stage companies being like, hey, we are thinking about diversifying our cap table. And you guys seem to be very vocal about this. Could we work together? 
long story short, we decided to start a growth strategy that we call the Advancement Initiative that wanted to invest in growth stage companies. So generally companies that are over 50 million of revenue, often over a billion of valuation. We're talking about Notion, Figma, Nubank, companies like that are some of our portfolio. Our value prop was, we'll invest in you, but we will donate 50% of our current interest in your name to create a scholarship for underrepresented students throughout the U.S. So when you IPO and when your valuation is 10x what it is today, that aligns incentives because it will go to putting a bunch of people through college. That has been a defining strategy for us and really has changed us as a platform. That is what we're doing today, trying to merge research and purpose. It's been quite the journey. I was really interested to read about the Advancement Initiative. I think a lot of the scholarship are focused on HBCUs, and some of the HBCUs are also LPs investing in the fund, like Howard and Hampton and Tuskegee. You're not technically a diversity investor, right? You don't have the single mission that a more specialist investor fund may have. But you also work with firms focused in that space. Can you talk about how you approach working with diversity investors and how important that is to you guys as part of your purpose? Absolutely. It's interesting because we have been pretty consistent on how we have gone about this since we started in 2017. And I remember pitching based on financial peace and our thesis was the same. We're going to focus on automation, real economy, companies that are solving problems for the 99% and founders that are authentic about these problems. Everyone will be like, oh, that makes sense. The data you have presented is sound. So does that mean that you are going to back a number of uh, minority founders? We're like, well, we don't know. We are going to try to find the best trends and the best companies within those trends. We will invest where the data takes us. Our guess and our experience over the past 14 years will tell us that a number of those companies will not be started in Silicon Valley and will be started by people that come from all places. So we will try to be unbiased about that and invest in the best people. Our guess is for some problems, like let's say freight forwarding in Latin America, they're probably going to be best served by a Latin American founder that has experience in freight forwarding, but who knows? It was very hard for people to get over the fact that we did not have any particular quotas or KPIs around the diversity of our founder group. Some groups were like, well, if you tell me that you are going to have more diverse founders, it will be easier for me to give you money, but we're not. <laughs> we are going to invest in what we believe are the best companies solving problems for the 99%. We're telling you that as part of our thesis, because we're looking for those characteristics, we think a bunch of the best founders are going to have those characteristics. Some people, they couldn't get over that. Others trust us. And it turns out we don't have any targets, KPIs, quotas, and yet we have ended up with a pretty diverse portfolio. Thankfully, a portfolio that is performing quite well. For our particular strategy of automation for the real economy, it makes sense that a lot of these founders look more diverse than your typical San Francisco-based firm Silicon Valley portfolio. One of the things we will love to prove, and actually McKinsey has some great publishing this, is that in this day and age, 
doing good and doing well truly are becoming more and more one and the same because employees, clients, shareholders have certain expectations of how a company should conduct business if it wants to be successful in the long term. I think it's a great feature of the free market that more and more the companies that are doing better are the companies that are able to show that they are a force for good for the community in the long term. So that it should be. We're very excited about that. For us in particular, thinking about our purpose, it made a ton of sense to have HBCUs as our partners. Looking at the data, they truly are the engines of innovation for particularly Black professionals in tech. and graduate more than 40% of that as computer scientists of color in America. That stat alone tells you a lot. There are students that come with a ton of grit. The resources on a lot of those campuses are not the resources that a lot of other Ivy League campuses have. And that makes for really hungry people. The founders we invest in love to hear, hey, if you focus on 10x in your company, that is going to create a bunch of returns for HBCUs that will go towards funding students that might be the next you that go and starts a company and the cycle begins again. That's what we would love to see. You talk about some of that original reaction you were getting. It sounds to some degree like folks were trying to categorize you, almost simplify things like, tell me that you're a diverse investor and then I can... I'm just wondering... As a diverse founder yourself, how that experience has been for you? Do you feel things are really starting to change in terms of opportunities for underrepresented minorities in tech? But obviously there can be potential for a lot of lip service in this area. Yeah, I think so. I'm an optimist. My personal experience has been interesting because I was an African in Spain and then I was a Spaniard in Silicon Valley. It's very interesting to see the comparisons because... When I was in middle school and high school and college, my brother and I were literally the only minorities. So that wasn't a conversation. It was just what it was. And it had good things and bad things and overall fantastic, but definitely very different than what I experienced when I got to, to the Stanford campus. What I would say is that it is a complex issue. My personal experience is that 90 plus percent of people intentions are in the right place. It's just complex and it takes time. Even if we agree on the problems, not everyone necessarily agree on the solutions. So when people were trying to like simplify us, I get it. We're all trying to go about it in the best way we can. And none of us has the right answer. We, based then, definitely don't have the right answer. We're trying this and we're happy to where it's going, but we will make a bunch of mistakes. Generally, given that most of us agree on the goals, which are within all of us benefit if more and more people from all sorts of places have the opportunity to innovate. That is one thing that everyone I have talked to agrees on. What I focus on is, do I see more and more people talking about that? And do I see more and more this at least being part of the conversation? I compare me starting 20 in 2005 in Madrid to where we are in 2023 today. feels like couple of lifetimes of progress. So I'm actually quite optimistic. Um, I think we should all have our eyes wide open about two things. One, it will take a lot longer than we all think. 
when I hear institutions or people that have very aggressive short-term goals, I worry because um, that could lead to frustration um, and that frustration could lead to abandonment of initiatives. So I think realistic long-term goals are important. And secondly, kind of learning in public and being able to be okay with making mistakes in public, which will be painful. I think we all have to assume we all have the best intentions, but none of us has the answer. So we'll all try our best. We'll learn from each other and we'll get to a better solution rather than here is the fault on what you are doing. (laughs) If we all collectively get to those two shift of mindsets, I am even more optimistic about what 10, 15 years from now will look like. Looking at the current environment, given the deflation in tech valuations, concerns about economic growth and rising interest rates, what is your advice to early stage founders as they navigate launching a business in this kind of an environment? We started base setting in 2017 and the venture capital market only got hotter and hotter every year. I'm 40. I've been doing this since I was 22. Honestly, there were times, particularly in 2021, where I was starting to think, oh, maybe I've gotten too old because some of the things I'm seeing, I think they're crazy. There was a point in 2021 where public companies that were growing over 50% a year, their average SaaS multiple was 70x revenues. This makes no sense to me. And that was not my experience with Identified. So in a weird way, the current environment feels like this is something I can make sense of. Things are becoming more real again. And I will just say this, and it's not necessarily new advice, but going back to the fundamentals of, am I solving a problem for real people? Go back to that. And then there come the questions of, if I'm not, let's go back to the drawing board. If I am, does my current valuation reflect the level where my business is at? Do I have enough money in the bank to get to the next milestone? And if not, and let's go back to the beginning and let's have a frank conversation with my team, my co-founders, my investors about, hey, maybe we are actually solving a real problem, but we might have gotten a bit ahead of our skis. Does that mean we need more money? We need to spend less? We need to adjust our expectations of valuations? That might be a series of painful decisions in the short term. I've been there. It's terrible. And you don't feel that you can do it. But if you can, I'll say for myself and for every single founder I have talked to that have had to fire a number of team members, adjust business model, completely change what they were doing, raise money, every single one that has gone through that and lived to tell the tales says, I built a more resilient company after I went through that. And it was such a blessing in disguise. It sounds simple, but I do think it's a time to go back to fundamentals. And who knows, maybe in three quarters, we're back to 2021 again. It's possible, but if anything, the last year was reinforcing, try to ignore the noise and focus on building a real business. You've talked about automation as being key. Are there other tenets from your life as a founder that inform the way you invest and look at companies today? Yes, absolutely. You have to become obsessed with the problem that you're solving. And obsession 
is not necessarily a sustainable thing, but I actually think it's necessary. You have to let the problem that you're trying to solve take over you and embrace the pain and the anxiety that come through it, make it part of you. One of the ways I have found uh, to make that more sustainable is to focus on the why. Because the problem is, why am I solving this? Why will this particular industry be better after my company is successful? It's extremely helpful. Well, I think that's a great place to end. Uh, I want to thank you so much, Ade, for taking so long to talk about your experience, both as a founder and an investor. Thank you so much, Daniel. A true pleasure. That's it for this episode of McKinsey on Startups. Thanks, as always, to our stellar podcast production team, Molly Carlin, Sid Ramtree, Myron Shergan, and Polly Nella. And of course, thank you for listening. This has been McKinsey on Startups, hosted by Daniel Eisenberg. We welcome your feedback, so please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Hope you join us next time for more broad global perspectives on the challenges and opportunities for accelerating growth. Thanks for listening.